Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. My name is Bryant, lead pastor here. Whether you are, we say this every week, but you're trying to figure things out, uh, just have a lot of genuine respect for you. You're asking questions. Uh, you're investigating online because you're too afraid to come right now. I totally get that. Um, or you're a longtime follower of Jesus. We are so glad that you're connecting or in the house, listening via radio, wherever it is. Uh, real quick, um, coming up on August the 8th, we talked about this last week, is kind of a big Sunday. Um, I start a brand new series that I am super excited about called Unbelievable grown-up questions about the Bible. And so the whole series, the premise is this, is a lot of you um, follow Jesus, but you still have questions about the Bible. Uh, you were given a saran wrap Bible somewhere in Sunday school with your name on it maybe, and you were like, just believe all of this, and you did, but you still have some questions as you've grown up, but you just believe it and have faith because somebody told you to do that. Or you're the place of, I don't know if I believe it. I got lots of questions about Genesis 1 and how reliable is it, and dudes wrote this thing after all. And so I wanna try to answer answer some of those questions, but I'm going to do it in such a way that for four weeks, I tell you the story of how we got the Bible and why I think it's reliable and why you don't have to be unintellectual to follow it and follow Jesus and why you maybe don't even have to throw out Genesis 1. I'm going to give you a little bit different perspective on that. So I hope that you will be here. I hope that you will invite somebody. I think it's one of the easiest invites of the year. And here's the other thing why this weekend is a big deal is because a lot of people are moving back into routines. Not everybody, not everybody can, but many are as school gets ready to start on the 10th. And so this is an incredible opportunity. And we're encouraging you to do two things if you're a part of our gathering. The first one is if you haven't engaged yet and you can, I understand everybody can't, but if you can, this would be a great Sunday. I'm talking to many of you online or via radio if you're listening to me. This would be a great Sunday to be back in house if you're in the Tampa area. And then in-house, we want to encourage you on this. You know people who maybe have been disconnected over the last year and a half, and so we're asking you to be the church. Like, break off a phone call to somebody. Actually, nobody calls anymore. Text them. You get a call, you're like, what's wrong with you? Just text them. Um, ask somebody, like, just how they're doing, where they're at, and invite them back into the gathering if you haven't seen them for a while, and be the church over these next few weeks. Here's the thing that we've heard over and over again from so many people, and you'll see a video next week around this, is so many people who've come back um, really could have come back a lot earlier, but they just kind of got into this routine, and you get into a routine, it's hard to break it. And as they came back, the words that they would use is, I just forgot how much I needed this. I forgot how, how powerful it was when I got into community or got into a group. I forgot what I was missing by serving. In some cases, I forgot what my kid was missing. And so we wanna just help remind you, and we want you to help remind people around you because relationships are powerful. Invite those individuals back on the 8th. I said it last week, like you have no idea what God's gonna do in this next season. And what I know happens when we engage as a body is God works. God provides relationships when you weren't expecting them to get you through this next season you don't even know is coming. God connects your middle schooler with an influencer in a small group 
that they're gonna listen to when they won't listen to you. And that person may anchor the gospel of Jesus' grace and love in their heart in such a way that's not just gonna matter at 15, it's gonna matter when they're 25. Do not miss what God wants to do in this next season. And there's something powerful about gathering together. Last weekend, and if they're in the house, hopefully they won't mind me sharing this, but I won't give any names. One of my favorite stories um, was afterwards talking to this guy that I've talked to for a couple weeks that was away from the church for a long time, I think a couple decades. And with tears in his eyes, he was talking about what this church has meant to him the last couple months as he's engaged. And for the first time, like he really feels open to following Jesus again. And he never thought that would happen in his life. He walked away a long time ago. Cool thing about the story is his mom was there um, last weekend and she began to tell me the story that um, about 20 years ago, she had this vision that she felt like one day she was gonna sit with her son in church no matter how impossible it felt at the time. And then she proceeded to tell me that this was kind of the culmination of that vision last weekend when she said, I got to sit with my son in church. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for creating an alternative to church as usual. So, Don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity to invite and the opportunity that may have to change somebody's life forever. And then I wanna encourage you to engage. If you're sitting in a row right now, that's awesome. Engage in terms of serving. Get in a community group when we announce community groups in a few weeks with a circle of eight to 10 people. You need that for your life. Begin to give, begin to get all the way in to go, I wanna help create something different for our community, for our city. I wanna impact people around me. So two things, invite somebody on the eighth, And then if you're not engaged yet, this is the time to engage. In fact, we even have, we don't ever do this, but we have thousands of mailers going out over the next couple weeks because we just wanna encourage you in, hey, now is the time. And I believe our greatest days are ahead of us as a church. So August the 8th, let's pray, let's invite, let's come expectant, bring your crew. If you're able to, now's the time to engage and let's watch what God does. You guys with me? So this is the conclusion of this series, and here's what this whole series has been about. The title is The Secret to a Good Life. And some of you, if you were here week one, um, you're maybe hesitant to come back for the rest of the series. But here's really what I've wanted to try to convince you of, is that Jesus offers this invitation in the New Testament where he says, I want you to follow me, and I want you to follow me into life to the full, I mean, oftentimes we never say this, but I feel like we almost interpret it as, hey, follow me and it'll suck. But it's spiritual, and if you love God, you're gonna do it anyway, and that's not what Jesus offers. I want you to follow me into life to the full, and life to the full is not pain-free or problem-free. I've talked about that a lot. Jesus actually promised the opposite. But in the midst of that, even in the midst of the pain, you can experience something different. You can experience a life that is characterized by peace, that is characterized by grace, that is characterized by fulfillment and contentment. And so when Jesus talks about the good life, that's what he's talking about is, I want you to follow me. And I want you to follow me into something better than you're even gonna choose for yourself because the ways of this world are countercultural. And if you just follow what you think, you'll end up in a place that ultimately you don't wanna be. Now, here's the thing about it though. What you will find all throughout the scripture is this principle right here, and that is that to end up anywhere, you've got to sow and reap your way in that direction. And here's why that's important, because like me, I am unbelievably impatient. Like I'm working on it, but it is off the rails. Like I'm unbelievably impatient. I just wanna get there. I want you to tell me what to do. Give me three steps. I'm pretty disciplined. I'll get it done. Like just tell me how to get there and I'll get there, right? 
but it's not how it works. In fact, the scripture talks about the fact that what you want for your future is not immediately accessible. You're not gonna listen to a message. Um, you're not gonna dial in some program. You're not gonna read a book and then suddenly it's like, okay, that's it, I'm gonna get there. It's not immediately accessible. You have to sow and reap your way in that direction, which means if you don't know the direction that you are sowing, you could end up in a place down the road where your life is not good. And then when you get there, a lot of times what we do is we look to what is immediately in our vicinity. So life isn't good and we think it's my marriage. Like it's her, it's him. Like we just need a new one. Or I, like I'm not happy because my kids are freaking off the rails. And if my kids were better, my life would be better. And then we start to look at our job or our career, or the government, or our church is terrible, or what they did to me. And we just wanna look in the immediate vicinity and we start pointing figures to go, this is why I feel the way that I feel. When the reality in a lot of cases is you feel the way that you feel because you spent a decade sowing in that direction. Now that's kind of harsh, so let me give you the positive side of that. <laughs> and I realized it as I said it, but... You can sow your way in a different direction. You can move yourself into a better place. And there's no place where this applies more than in the area of money. Now, if you did just happen to come here on week three, you're like, oh crap. So I just wanna tell you what I've said for every week. You don't do tons of stuff that I tell you to do every single week. So if you're uncomfortable, just do what you do oftentimes and treat this as another Sunday where you're gonna listen to me, go your way and not do anything that I tell you to do, okay? <laughs> That's your out. But this is such a huge area. And here's what we've said in this series is that money can add meaning to your life, but money is not the meaning of life. It can add meaning, but it is not the meaning. And the only way, honestly, that it adds meaning is when it becomes a means to an end that is bigger than you. And the same is true, actually, of your life. Your life becomes meaningful when your life becomes a means to an end that is bigger than you. You are not big enough to live for. I'm not big enough to live for. There is a greater story and a greater narrative specifically that Jesus has invited us into. And so if you wanna find meaning in anything, the way you find meaning is for that thing to be a means to an end. The same is true of your money and your resources. Now, here's what I wanna ask you as I set up what I wanna talk about today and then lay in this plane. Have you ever looked back on a decision that you've made previously in your life and thought, in the moment when I made that decision, I thought, I was 100% certain that that was a great decision for my life. I was completely certain that like this was the pathway to the good life or a better life or this is the next step I needed to take. And I was so certain in the moment only to get on the other side of that and realize it was an absolute train wreck of a decision. I'll just let you raise your hand for a second. Like anybody be honest in church? Like it, so which says a couple things. The, the first thing it says is this that you should not believe everything that you think, right? Because all of us have those things, like you married him, you dated her, you smoked it, you went there, you decided to lease it. Like you shouldn't believe everything you think in the moment of this is going to be good for me. All of us have those stories. This is especially true with money. And we think with money that more money, as we've said in the series, is gonna lead to the good life. More money is gonna lead to a better life. More money is gonna lead to happiness. In fact, let's just, let me just say what you think all the time. When guys like me on stages teach series and they're like, money is not gonna lead to happiness in your mind, you're like, try me. 
Like, just give me that test and let me see before I just, you know, arrive at your conclusion. The reality is there is a correlation. Like, there is a correlation between your money and your life, even your money and your happiness, money and, and your peace, but it's not around what we think it is. Because what we think it is, as we've said, is around this word right here, more. We think if there is just more, that's the connection. And so a lot of times in our minds, there's always this plateau. There's always this, if I could just get to this place. So let me ask you a couple questions real quick. And you know every time I do this, I'm setting you up, but just go with me anyway. How much more money would you need to have a good life? And I know like you have the church answer, but throw that out for just a second. Like how, like for real, because you have an answer in your mind. How much more money would you need to have a good life? Now, here's the thing that you gotta know. If you sit down with anybody, like however you characterize good life, and it's gonna be different for some of us. So I, I kind of wanna lead you to the definition that Jesus gives later. But you look at somebody, you think, man, they have a good life. Here's what I'll tell you is the common thread for those people. If you look at their life, there is one thing that they all have in common and the one thing that they have in common is peace. Now, we don't often think of it that way, and we don't often really draw the conclusion of what thread we find in all the individuals that we look at to go, man, I wish I had some of what they had. But I'm telling you, it's around that word right there. It's around peace. People who get to a place to go, man, my life is good, regardless of how much they have, they have peace. In fact, I would argue, and I don't have time to unpack this, that they have peace with God, that they've come to the place to realize that God has done something for them in history through Jesus, that he died, he walked out of a grave alive, he's paid the punishment for their sin, and regardless of their past and what they've done and what they're struggling with, they can have peace with God on the basis of what God has done for them. That's massive. <laughs> and they also, I think, have found a way to get to a place where they have peace with themselves. And by the way, those two things are connected. When you have peace with God, you can arrive at a place where you have peace with yourself. And you can stare up at the ceiling regardless of what's happened and what you have done and realize that you are okay because you're okay in Christ. And then they find a way to have peace with other people around them. And so how much more money would you need to have a good life? Let me ask it this way based on what I just said. How much more money would it take to give you peace? Like that's the better question. Like my kids are a wreck. I got a raise. Like my marriage is a dumpster fire, but I got a promotion. Like what, what's gonna, like you just flunked out sophomore year, but like your bank account's looking pretty good. What would be enough to where it would override all of those things and then you would have peace anyway? Like how much more money would you need to give you peace? And the answer to the question, no surprise for all of us is a little bit more than you currently have, right? It's, and if you're in your 30s and 40s, I don't think you believe that. Specifically in your 20s and 30s. I think by the time you get to like your 40s and 50s and beyond, you wished you had believed that. Because for some in this room or watching or listening via radio, you actually had several benchmarks that you were trying to get to. And for some of you, you actually arrived. Like you arrived at the benchmark only to realize it didn't give you what you thought it would give you. The peace that you thought was gonna come from that, it, it didn't come. And, and we said this last week, this is the insidious thing around these pursuits where we just think a little bit more of what hasn't worked is gonna work. But how much more money would it take to give you peace? Like, listen, there is a correlation between your money and your life 
and the good life as Jesus described it, but it is not around more. And we've said this every week because you know people with more stuff and their life is not good. And you know people with less, maybe way less than you. And there's a lot of attributes and characteristics of your life that you wish you had. There's things about their family that you wish were true of your family. It just doesn't hold up. More does not hold up. And so what I'm about to talk about for a couple minutes, here's the frustration for me. I know that this is like, what I'm gonna talk about is not hugely controversial, unlike other messages that I give. This one is like pretty much everybody I think will agree, But the tension is, how do we move this from our head to our heart to where we actually do something with it? Because I believe it has the power to change something significant in your life. It does. So so how does that happen? Luke um, describes it this way in just a second, but before we get to him, this is the huge word that is the correlation between your money and the good life, and it is not around more, it's around this word right here, managed. And we've said this all throughout the series. The good life is not about more of. It is about the management of. It is not how much you have. And money can contribute to your meaning in life, but only if you manage it well. I've said every week, but I wanna keep reiterating it. Jesus teaches very clearly in the New Testament, I think that you should never feel guilty around anything. Like God's placed certain things in your hands for a reason. The only thing that he is worried about is how you view those things and whose kingdom comes first and how you decide to manage it. That's what he's most concerned about. And here's the thing. Just go with me for just a second because I think this is so important. Anything that undermines your peace ultimately will undermine your life. So you don't have peace, you don't have anything. And because of what I do with a job, I've met lots and lots of people with lots and lots of money and sitting in a counseling session and they have no peace and their life is not good. Anything that undermines your peace undermines your life. And if you mismanage your money, just listen to me for a second, you will not have peace and your life will not be good. And so Jesus says this, either you will manage your money or your money will manage you. And if your money manages you, mark it down, you will not have any peace. Hold on for a second. And when you do not have peace, you feel out of control. And when you feel out of control in any area of your life, you feel anxiety. And when you feel anxiety, you do not have contentment. And when you feel anxiety, you do not have peace. And when you feel anxiety, generally you are not happy. And when you feel anxiety, that does not feel like your life is good, no matter how much stuff you have. And so Jesus says, follow me. Follow me into something better. Luke said it this way. I wanna, I wanna recap these verses that I looked at last week and then I wanna draw a completely different application because I think it's so important that we land here. This is what Luke writes describing a conversation Jesus had around this whole subject. And I'll just tell you this. If you were not here for week one, go back and listen to that because this whole series is framed on week one, two, and three. So you owe it to yourself to do it. If you don't follow any of it, that's fine. But just go back and listen. Luke 16, 13, here's what Jesus said. And we looked at this briefly last week, real quick. No one can serve two masters. And immediately you're like, this is the first century, I do what I want. And then for some of you, you get a credit card bill and you're like, oh, actually I don't. No one can serve two masters. 
That's Jesus' point. Either you will hate the one and love the other, and this is typical Jesus. He's drawing really big extremes in order to make a point. Either you're gonna hate the one and love the other, or you're gonna be devoted, and that's the word I wanna focus on, devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he talks about these two masters. You cannot serve both God and your money. And again, we said this last week, but if you didn't know the end of the verse, and many of you do, you would think, well, the number one thing in here is like, if you're talking about the war between mastery and you know, being enslaved and who's gonna get the victory and all the stuff we have to you know, contend against, well, that's like, that's God and probably my ex-wife, or it's, it's God and culture, or it's God and the government, or it's God and all the decaying morality, it's God and the devil, it's God and, the, and Satan. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. <laughs> The number one competitor for your life and for your future is not any of those things. Your ex doesn't hold a candle to your stuff. It's God and your money. He's like, you'll serve God and you'll serve money. And the Greek word is mammon, which means it's way more than God. It actually has the idea of your stuff, but not just your stuff in the moment. It's what you have. It's what you want. It's what you're trying to acquire. It's all of it. He's like, you can't serve both. And as we said last week, here's what Jesus knew. The chief competitor, just listen for just a second. The chief competitor for your devotion, for your heart, for your affections, for your worship is your stuff. And I know immediately you read Jesus' words, you're like, well, that's a big language. Like I don't serve my stuff and I don't love my money. Jesus is like, "Mm." hold on. And then here's what he said in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you'll love the other one, or, and this is really the word, you will be devoted to the one. You will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other one. And at this point, you're like, okay, what do you mean by love stuff? And Jesus is like, I mean, you're devoted to your stuff. So I know like love stuff, that kind of hits extreme. Like nobody loves their stuff. I don't love my money. Like that's kind of ridiculous. He's just like, okay, here's what I mean. I mean, you are devoted to your stuff. I.e. definition, a strong attachment to. Oh crap. I mean, pursuit of. I mean, eye on. I mean, your primary decision making filter. Jesus is like, that's what I mean by devoted to. And Jesus would say this, it's maybe uncomfortable, but I think you may have to determine you're at least pretty devoted because you may not bow down to it. You don't have little idols of money. Like it's not, you're not worshiping. You don't have prayer times with your stuff. I get all of that. You don't bow down to it. But if you were to measure your devotion to your money and stuff up against how you measure devotion to anything else in your life, you would probably have to determine that you are at least pretty devoted to your stuff and the acquisition of your stuff. Jesus is like, that's what I'm talking about. So let me ask you a couple questions again as a complete setup. Has your desire to acquire ever caused you to do something? Yeah, dumb question. Like, I wanted it, I saw it, the emotion started to rise, and so I acted on it. Like, I bought it, I leased it, I decided, like, we needed to do it. Has your desire to acquire ever caused you to do something? Second question. Has your desire to acquire ever caused you to do something stupid? Now, notice there's no comma. I'm not, like, 
Has your desire to acquire ever caused you to do something stupid? I'm just saying like, make a stupid decision where all of a sudden like the emotion rises and you're like, I already have one. It already works. It drives perfect. Like it's pretty good, but we need an upgrade or we want to renovate it anyway, or we want more. And none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. None of you can upgrade, you can whatever, all you want to, but has it ever, those desires, have they ever taken control where it caused you to do something where you look back on and go, that was just dumb. That was just stupid. We shouldn't have signed that. We shouldn't have leased that. We shouldn't have bought it. We shouldn't have acquired it. And the third question, has your desire to acquire ever caused you to do something that you regret? Where a desire for, over time, created devotion to. And what happens in those moments is your devotion to your desire for stuff, to get more, to get what you want, In some cases, to satisfy an appetite that can't even be satisfied, in that moment, you become mastered. In that moment, you become controlled. And Jesus is smarter than any of us think. And Jesus is brilliant. And it's why Jesus said, listen, you may not believe it and you don't live your life like it, but the chief competitor for your heart, your affections, and your emotions is your desire to acquire. And when that desire to acquire takes over, it enslaves you. And when you are enslaved, you are not happy. And when you are enslaved, you are not content. And when you are enslaved, you do not have peace. And when you are enslaved, your life is not good. And it doesn't matter how many zeros are at the end of your net worth. You're just not. Now, all of that is so unbelievably obvious, isn't it? You didn't need me to tell you that. You just wasted your time. But here's the thing that drives all of this is this word right here. And I've talked about this idea before, but it's so powerful and I want you to get it. It all begins with this word right here, discontentment. Discontentment. Now, here's what we know is discontentment ensures that I am never satisfied with what I have because I know what you have and I know what there is to have. And come on, has that ever been more prevalent than right now? Like there is no point in human history where we had the ability to be more aware of what everybody was doing, what everybody was buying, what everybody was upgrading, where everybody was traveling every moment of every freaking day than we do right now, right? And the reality is this, awareness creates discontentment. Awareness creates discontentment. Now, like there's nothing wrong with any of your social media by itself, but come on, I, I, like some of us, I, I feel it would go through withdrawals and cold sweats, but like I think there are moments to just go, it's just not helping me. I should just pause for a while. Like I am so enslaved by this awareness that is creating this desire to acquire. It's tempting me to do something stupid or honestly just leading my soul and my heart in a place where I just don't feel good. Just stop it for a while. Just pause Pinterest for a while. Just get off of Instagram for a while. But the reality is awareness creates discontentment. You can go from not knowing something existed to wanting it in about 60 seconds. And the thing that drives all of this is discontentment. I mean, it's amazing. Like I've had this happen several times. Um, I I don't think I want to tell this example, so I'm I'm just going to keep moving. 
because I've told it twice and like every time I do, okay, so just real quick. Just real quick, because everybody thinks that I'm, I'm, I'm playing when I say this, but this is an absolute true story, and I told this a couple years ago, and people actually made me shirts and sent them and, and offered to buy what I'm about to talk about. I don't want you to do that. I'm not ready for it. I'll let you know, but I, I, one day, I'll never forget this, and this is gonna sound like the dumbest story in the world, and I'm making this up, and it sounds way out of character for me, but it's true. I was sitting in office one time with a couple of our staff, and they were looking at something, and some of you heard me tell this story before, and immediately, um, and I don't know why this resonates when I think about this, but it does. They were looking at these Nigerian dwarf goats and um, immediately, you guys, some of you heard me talk about this before. Um, Immediately, I didn't know these things existed and this is no joke. Immediately I saw these things and I'm like, this is the greatest animal in the world. Like they're about this big. You can almost put them in your pocket. Um, You can milk these things and they're really good with kids. And I thought, why in the world did I get a dog when Nigerian dwarf goats exist and you can bring them home? And I could bring them home into my neighborhood. I have a big backyard. Nobody will know that they're even there. But I immediately wanted those things and I'm going to get them. I told the story about two years ago so everybody thinks I'm, I'm full of it. I have to wait for my boys to get old enough to take care of them, which is about nine or 10, because I'm not gonna take care of them myself. But the fact that you can buy little goats and milk them in your backyard is unbelievable to me. <laughs> unbelievable. And I just tell that to say, like, that, I don't know why that's the first thing. It doesn't sound like me, but I just, I want these things. There will, I promise, because I, I mentioned this in about two other messages. When it happens, for those of you who think that I'm not playing, I'm playing, I, there will be pictures on the screen. I'll let you know. I'll keep you informed. Follow me on Instagram. They're coming in about two years. But awareness creates discontentment. And then over time, okay, hang with me because I know I lost everybody. Like I'm, I'm gonna try to get serious for a second. I, I have a point here. That's why I wasn't gonna tell this. It all begins with discontentment. And the other thing that drives discontentment is not just awareness, it's greed. Now here's real, real quick, now I got serious. Greed is impossible for anybody to admit. People will admit they are serial killers before they admit that they're greedy. They're like, I killed five people. I'm not greedy. Like, people will not admit it. It's impossible to see in the mirror. Nobody thinks they're greedy. We're just careful. We're frugal. I just, I'm wise. And you're like, you look and you're like, no, you're greedy. Um, But here's what greed is. This is the best definition maybe I've ever heard. Um, I think it was from Andy Stanley. And this is such a fire definition. It's the assumption that everything is for your consumption. Like that's what greed is. So let's boil down for a second because I know this is uncomfortable. We'll move on quickly. But greed is the assumption that it is all for your consumption. Meaning anything that I get, it's this mindset because it's all about mindset. It's for me. It's why when you're caught up in greed, whether you realize it or not, it's why you think you are amazing the moment you give anything. Like you give something and immediately you're kind of like, please praise me. Like I gave stuff away. How amazing am I that I would take something that I've earned, I've worked so hard for, and that I would give it away to somebody else. Praise me. Because that mindset is the assumption that it's all for your consumption. And, and the fact that you would give any of it away, how amazing of you that you would give your stuff away. But here's the reality in this assumption, consumption is this, is that, the moment you think that everything that comes to you is for you, you will spend almost all of it on you. 
That's what that assumption leads to. And it's not how we generally define greed, but that's actually the definition of greed in the way Jesus describes it in the New Testament. And greed in the desire to acquire is like an appetite. Appetites grow. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And the problem with appetites of, I want more, I need more, another one, upgrade. The problem with appetites is they are never satisfied when the money runs out. Because they're appetites. They just keep growing. They just keep wanting more. And so awareness and greed lead to discontentment. And then to the point that I just made, that awareness and greed then lead us to this third thing, which is debt. It's discontent. I'm not satisfied with what I have because I know what you have. I know what there is to have. And then that discontentment is fueled by awareness. And then awareness and, and discontentment fuels debt and ultimately, or fuels greed, and then ultimately it leads to debt. And here's the thing that I would say about debt, and this is so important. It's so simple, but it's so important. Wanting something is better than owing something. And the Atlantic did an amazing study in 2013 where it, it talked about this whole tension. But here's the reality of this side of heaven. There is always gonna be a tension. It's not bad to want things. It's not bad to want to upgrade things. It's not bad to be praying that, that God's going to do this thing or that God may open a door over here. I want you to hear me. None of that is wrong. But there is always going to be a tension at certain moments where you are going to want things that you do not have. And at other points, you're going to want things that you can't have. And the better tension is I want, but I don't have rather than I have, but I owe. It's just a better tension and a better way to, to live because debt is when you become a slave to your desire. Your devotion to your desire leads to slavery. And I'm just telling you, many of you know this, you could preach this message. You may not even believe in Jesus, you could preach this message. In that place, when you live like that, your life is not good. You don't have the level of peace that you want. You're not in the place that you want in terms of contentment and fulfillment. And can, then can I just say this? I know it's really uncomfortable getting really quiet in here. Wanting is between you and God. Just think about this dynamic for a second. But owing is between you and a creditor. It's better to keep it in relationship with you and God than bring your desires and wanting with you and somebody else because the scripture says God always sides with the creditor because if you're a follower of Jesus, you should pay what you owe. And so listen, it, it is amazing to get to a place to go, I could get that, but I'm not. I could buy that, but I won't. We could upgrade to that, but we're not going to. We could get a new car. This has 230,000 miles, but we're not going to because we don't really need to. That's an amazing place to be. And something happens where you start to starve out desires where you don't need as much as you previously needed. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting more or even enjoying. The issue is, when you want to the point that your awareness fuels discontentment that ultimately creates greed that leads to debt, you will not live at peace. It's why in my personal life, I do not have a lot of like really sophisticated goals. Some people do that, I don't. Um, we do somewhat organizationally, but I think simple is always better. So my goals are really, really simple when it comes to a personal level. That's just the way I like it. I don't have a lot of financial goals, but the top of my list is just a singular goal every year. Stay out of debt. If I just do that, that's a, that is a keystone habit that will lead to just about everything that else that I want financially in terms of my future. Stay out of debt. One goal, stay out of debt. And can I just say this? This is so crazy. 
the more, this is just statistically, this is true. The more money you make, the more money you make, the more tempted you are to go into debt. Now, explain that to somebody in a third world country. Like, what? Why? Because there's an appetite that grows. And awareness, if un- left unchecked, fuels discontentment, ultimately leads to greed and awareness and greed lead to debt and you end up in a place that you don't wanna be. And so listen, here's my admonition to you. Do not trade your peace and your happiness for some acquisition that can't bring you either. Don't make the trade. Don't do it. So discontentment, greed, debt. Discontentment, greed, debt. Here's my question. Which one of these... (laughs) Which one of these leads to a good life? Which one of these leads to the place that you want for your future? And the answer to that question for all of us, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is none of them. Which is so obvious. I could just stop right here to go, really the only application I've got for you is just stop, let's pray. Just don't do that, let's pray. Because... If you wanna know how your money and your stuff and your resources are connected to the life that Jesus has for you, it is around the issue of surrender. And we've talked about this throughout this series, but we get so consumed with and focused on the issues of money and stuff as Jesus talks about it, when the whole time it was never Jesus' point in the first place. His point was, I want to know what you're most devoted to. And I don't want you to be mastered by other things because I'm your master. And I want you to trust that I am a way better master. I died for you. I gave up my life for you. How much more do I need to do to prove to you that my desires for your future and your destiny and my will for your life are better than what you're gonna come up with? And I want you to trust me. And the issue is whose kingdom is gonna come first? And I want you to put my kingdom first because I'm better. My ways are better. Following me is better. And your life is gonna be meaningful when your life is lived as a means to an end. I want you to surrender to me because it's about what you are most devoted to. It's about your heart. You serve a savior that condescended into human flesh to feel what you feel, to cry the way that you've cried, to be betrayed the way that you've been betrayed, to feel your heart ripped out. He experienced all of it and he willfully set his face toward Jerusalem to give up his life, to die on the cross, to take all of the sin and the wrath for all of humanity. And then three days later, He walked out of a grave alive, a resurrected savior in history that if you would place your faith and your trust in what he has done for you, believing he died, rose again, you can't earn your way to God. The only way is through what Jesus has done. I'm telling you, in that moment as a son, as a daughter, as heirs of the kingdom, one day you're gonna be face to face with Jesus. You're gonna experience everything in his presence because of what he's done. But he says to you, I want you to begin to experience a little bit of my kingdom right now. Follow me. Trust me. So what amount of money would it take to eliminate discontentment? There's no amount of money. You know this. 
that would ever eliminate this kind of, how much money would you need to eliminate greed? There's no benchmark. There is no dollar amount that's ever gonna be able to take that away, which is Jesus' point. The only thing that can address it is the management of. Jesus is like, it's about who is in control. So it's why he says, nobody can serve two masters. And then he offers an alternative. You cannot serve both God and your money. Like there is a way to submit your financial world and say, God, I want you to manage me. I don't want my stuff to manage me and I want you to begin to replace my misplaced devotion with a better devotion in terms of following you. Now, as we end, if you were to compile everything in the New Testament in regard to what Jesus said around this area and just from personal experience, if you were to look at the people and you maybe never dug down to think about this, that maybe you admire and you look at their life, you go, man, I want some of that. I want a family like that. I, wanna, I just wanna live the way they live, the, the level of peace they have, the level of contentment they have, the level of just anxious, free living. And it's not perfect, but you know what I'm talking about? You meet those people like, I just want some of that. You'll find two things in common, just mark it down. Especially around this area of their life. And the two things are just this. They live with generosity and they live with wisdom. I've never sat down as a pastor's kid that grew up in the deal who's met so many people and so many extraordinary people. I've never met an individual where I haven't had a chance to talk to, to get to know, where I look at their life to go, man, I want some of that. It has always been characterized by these two words, generosity and wisdom. And come on, when you contrast this with discontentment, with greed, with debt, is there any competition? Like we already know what we need to move forward. So as we get ready to end, I wanna end where we did last week and this is so practical, but it really is the means for how do I flip the script of my financial world? How do I begin to, to live as a means to an end? How do I begin to not allow my money to get a hold of me and control me and master me? And what we said is this, you've got to begin to reprioritize different things. And the way we said it was this, give, save, live. Give, save, live. I'm gonna do what generally people do last, I'm gonna do it first. And here's what I would encourage you as we get ready to close, just take a step. Following Jesus is not about perfection, it's about direction. You just need to take your next step. Some of you, you've given at some point along the way. So a lot of you are kind of at the occasional giving stage where I give every once in a while if I feel a need or my emotion is moved. I just wanna encourage you to take a step. I don't wanna encourage you to go from like step one to step four, but just take a step. Move from occasional giving to consistent giving. And listen, if you're turned off by the church, give somewhere else. Find needs in the community. We partner with about 10 organizations we give money away to every single month, tens of thousands of dollars every year, but you do your thing. I think for my family, and this is something I did way before I was a pastor, I, I gave to the local church on mission because I felt like it was God's plan A to change cities and change worlds when it was on mission. But you just, this will just be good for your life. This isn't about the church. This is about you should just program this into your life because it's gonna help you. You're gonna begin to manage your world better. So move from occasional giving to consistent giving. One of the best ways to do that, just to automate your giving. Some of you, you're in consistent giving and you need to take a step to percentage priority giving, which means I'm not gonna allow a lifestyle to dictate my life. I'm not going to be surprised at the, in the next decade to go, here's what I did or here's what I didn't do. I'm going to decide ahead and I'm gonna tell my stuff what to do. I'm gonna pick a percentage off the top. If it's nothing right now, then pick one or two. 
one or two right now, take a step. Stretch your faith, go to four or five. If you've been following Jesus for 30 years and somebody taught you 10, which is really arbitrary, and it would be easy for me to teach that, you just don't find it in the New Testament, but move it up because your faith is all about growing faith. It's all about God wants to stretch you. And so pick a percentage and make it a priority. I'm gonna give it first. Last week, I challenged you two months because for one week or two weeks doesn't do anything. For two months, begin to give first. And I'm telling you, it will begin to change things for you. And then finally, for some of you, you need to move from percentage priority. Like you've had that down for a while. You need to move to proportional. Like you move to a place in your faith and your growth and where you're at and your journey with Jesus, where there's some things where I can do more than this. I can give over and above this. Like there's areas where God's moving my focus and my heart breaks and I need to be involved. And now I'm going to begin to give proportionally to where I am in my faith, which I've followed Jesus for a while. I'm in the place where I already trust Jesus. I've had a, a, a kind of a, a track record of taking steps of faith. And now it's time for me to take a step of faith and to proportionally give according to what God has given me. So I just wanna encourage you, just take a step. And here's what I'll promise you. When you begin to give and order your lifestyle around it, not spontaneous or occasional, but I mean, order your life around it. Giving always results in joy. Jesus was right. He just, he's smart. It is better to give than it is to receive. And saving always results in peace. If you begin to manage your money well, it will lead to peace of mind. And then thirdly, living on the rest, hear me, always results in freedom. Do not spend more than you make. Live on what you have. And when you do, you will be free. And I'm just telling you, it's not worth it. It's great to get to a place in life where you can look around at other things to go, I, I can willfully say no to that. I could do that, but I'm not. Because your vacation, your house, and your car is not worth my peace. And so Jesus, I wanna surrender this to you. And come on, imagine, imagine if you had done this for the last 20 years. For a lot of you, I'll just promise you, your life would be different. And I'll just promise you over time, it's not a lot of things that I promise you, but I'll promise you this. God will replace your appetites currently with better appetites. God will transform your desires because it is not about the amount of stuff you have. It is how you manage what you have. And I think if you're a follower of Jesus, your heavenly father is inviting you. I want to manage your life. I want you to put my kingdom first. I wanna use you as a means to an end that is bigger than you. And yes, it is gonna be difficult. And yes, there's gonna be moments when it flies out of control. And yes, you're gonna struggle relationally. And yes, there's gonna be unanswered prayers that you cannot really figure out. And yes, God's gonna do things that are really confusing, but I died for you in history. I walked out of a grave alive. It's my exclamation point that I am for you. I am with you. I love you. I'm working everything for your good and for my glory. Trust me in this area. And if you will follow me around the issues of your resources, your life will be better. And the thing that characterizes a good life will be within your grasp, and that is peace, contentment that comes from surrender. Would you stand with me and pray wherever you're at? And would you join me online? Those of you who are listening via unfiltered radio, all over Central Florida, those on podcasts, those who are watching right now. Jesus, I just thank you so much for what you are doing in this moment, what you've done 
in this series. And as I've prayed every single week, I know that there is so much baggage around this. There's so much that has been said and done in the name of Jesus that you would cringe at. And so my prayer has been that you would just cut through a lot of that stuff, that you would eliminate those barriers. And that more than anything else, I don't want people to hear from me. I don't want them to be caught up in a message or, or some line that's said. I want them to, I want them to hear your heart. I want you to know, I want them to know what you are inviting them into. And, and the fact that that these are your words, not mine. And what you're inviting us into, it's just better. And I just pray that we would begin to believe that in the areas of how we manage our time, what we do with our money, our pursuits, our sexuality, our dreams for the future, to just believe you are better. And so God, I pray more than anything else for surrender, to go back to what we talked about last week, that we would submit and surrender our kingdoms to your kingdom. And we would allow you to manage us and lead us. And then I pray for those who are, they're just not sure about you. And maybe this has been the moment, as odd as it is with the subject matter, but they just realize you are who you say you are. And I just wanna give them an opportunity to respond right now to place their faith and trust in Jesus. And scripture says that, to become a son and daughter of God, to be forgiven, to have a relationship with God. It's simply a transfer of trust to believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and to declare, God, I cannot save myself, so I'm trusting what Jesus has done for me. So if that's you, I just wanna lead you in this prayer. This prayer does not save you. It's your declaration of faith and trust. And for some of you listening and in the house, this is your moment and I wanna give it to you. Just pray this, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin past present and future. I believe that you rose again. And right now, I'm asking you to forgive me and to save me. And if that's you with nobody looking around in the house, would you just lift up your hand if this is your moment to go, I'm placing my faith and my trust in Jesus personally to save me, to rescue me. Would you just lift it up so I can not do anything weird, but I can celebrate with you generally. Those who are online, I just wanna ask you to text right now in this moment, center point to 94,000 to let us know of your decision. Center point to 94,000. I wanna encourage you, take a next step by getting into next steps. Get into a group. Do not be satisfied with listening or sitting in a row. It's not enough. Take a step. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done in this moment. I thank you for what you've done in our hearts. You are the only one who is worthy of our worship, our adoration, and our devotion. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Would you guys give it up who've made decisions today to follow Jesus? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.